Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, we are in our third and final week of our series called Uprising, where we've talked about different types of of faith. In the first week, we talked about there were how many stages of faith, church? How many? Four stages of faith. Y'all are asleep. Wake up with me. There are four stages of faith we talked about in the first week, and we kind of broke it down, and we said that the first stage is non-faith. That's somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in Christ. And in essence, if you're in a level of non-faith, and if you're a non-Christian, this is kind of where you are, then in non-faith is you, in essence, are your own God. And then there's the second stage, then the bridge between the first and second is, is accepting Christ in a personal way as, you, as your Lord and Savior. And then we get to a level of institutional faith. This is like the Sunday school faith, the, the reading your Bible level. This is the learning how to pray, learning what fellowship is, learning what communion is, learning what, you know, maybe if you should follow through with believer's baptism, these types of things. And then I said that the next level that we go to is a desert faith and this is a challenging faith because the things that we learned in step in stage two start not to make sense in stage three and then rely us to or rather they, they make us rely on something bigger than ourselves. when we get into a, a deeper level and relationship with christ and then after we do that and we realize that we don't have the answers and all those sunday school kind of things aren't the answer to the problem. It's, it's asking God, say, what are you teaching me in this moment? Then we go from the desert, and then we go into a worshipful faith. Who remembers that? Anyone? Good. There's four of us. Perfect. <laughs> then last week, Jared, his message was amazing. We've kind of, uh, we really kind of worked through all these things, and, and we talked about the 12 spies, and there were the ten and the two, and, and everybody, you know, we're, we're called to be what? We're called to be the two. He says, are you a ten or are you a two? Which I was really troubled by this because I've always been told, like, through our 19 years of marriage that I'm a ten with Marla, and then now I'm supposed to be a two, and now I'm, I don't, are we okay? We're, okay? we're good, all right. I'm smiling. We're good. We're good. So the, the, the ten and the two is saying, you know what, the, the two are the, the, the Joshua and the Caleb, that's the people who, who stood up even in the face of adversity and everything seemed to be going south and yet they stood up. They looked at the same situation as everyone else and said, you know what, I believe God's bigger than this situation. Sure, the people are big. Sure, the land, it, it is what you said it was, Lord. And yet we're called to stand up in this moment and they were inviting others to, to follow them. Well, week three... As you open up your Bibles to Judges 15, don't teach from this a whole lot. Don't teach from this a whole lot. Judges 15, verses 1 through 7. Still continuing with the, with the theme of faith, but we're talking about uh, this kind of from a different angle. One of the things I loved that Jared talked about last week is, and he really pushed this in, and I'm going to mention it later, but not to the depth that he did, is this idea of holy discontent. This, this, this restlessness within us to know that something needs to change, something ought to change. And what I want us to see today is maybe the thing that God wants to change could be us. Maybe it's, it's changing us so then that we can bring that to maybe bring some change into our world. But we'll get to that in a couple minutes. This is a very interesting scripture. If, if you're not like a, a Bible reader, I would say this is a great 
passage for you to jump into. It's kind of controversial. It's kind of weird. There's some supernatural things that are happening there that absolutely do not make sense, like within yourself. Nobody has done what Samson, we're going to read about today. Nobody has done this. If you were to do this, you would miserably fail. But yet Samson had the Spirit of the Lord, gave him a supernatural ability. And you know what? I'm the type of guy where I'm compelled by these stories. And I think that you will be as well. I I would say that... for you, maybe you're, you know, you're challenged with the whole Bible reading thing and you say, you know what, I want to, but yet sometimes it seems dry. This is not dry, okay? This is not dry. It's controversial. It's good. Um, controversial doesn't always have a negative connotation. It's good. Everybody say it's good. You believe that. That's good. Again. All right. So we are going to be in Judges 15. I, I would say this. Before we get into this passage... That, that we have to understand something. God is using a severely broken person here. Anybody resonate with that? This is a severely broken person that God is using. We're going to see somebody who, does, who, who goes about his life in some ways very selfish. He seems to be very self-centered. He seems to be just working out his anger. And, and we're going to see that God's kind of working through all of those kind of circumstances. And yet, what's remarkable is God has placed this individual in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, is what we call it. That's kind of like the, the, you know, the, the Bible Hall of Fame kind of thing, kind of like the NFL and Canton and Major League Baseball, if anyone likes baseball anymore, with, that's in Cooperstown, New York, and all these things. And it's like, this is God's, these are the people that God says, wow, they lived this great life of faith, and yet when we look at this scripture, you're going to say, really? And that's what I want you to think. Really? Starting in verse 1, we're going to read all the way through verse 17, some heavy lifting, then we're going to pick it apart after that. If you don't have a Bible, there are some spread out uh, in the chairs around you. Tap your neighbor, get a Bible. Let's read it together. Judges 15, verse 1. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him or, but her father would not let him go in. Now he's he's married to this woman. The marriage is not the same type of marriage that we have in our day and age. It was more of a process. And yet they were they were considered married by everyone else, but their their marriage hadn't been consummated yet. She still lived with mom and dad. Seems awkward in our culture, but that's what's happening. Verse two. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. A little bait and switch. Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. Stop right there. Now, if you know anything about wildlife, you've been out in the woods here in Georgia, you know that foxes usually don't run in packs. Dogs do. This word literally being translated can be translated foxes or jackals. A jackal is like a wild dog in their day. So this is, this is one of the kind of a problem, uh, kind of a, a problem in the translation. This word shawal, it literally can mean foxes or jackals. I believe it's more jackals than it is foxes because 
I have seen foxes out in the woods, but you don't see them in large packs. So for this to happen, it, it more seems like a pack of dogs would come in, they would wrestle the dogs up, or as we would say in Georgia, wrestle them up, and then we would put their tails together, he lit it on fire, and he sent them off into the woods, or into the, into the, the grain to burn it. Verse 6. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. That's heavy right there. Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He says, Until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered them all. And then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Atom. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lahai. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then check this out in verse 11. Then 3,000 men from Judah, his own people, his own people, went down to the cave in the rock of Atom and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We'll come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Stop. Samson, it seems like on the surface, it seems like he's doing his own thing, doesn't it, when you read that? It seems like he's, I'm going to go out and take my revenge. It seems like every time that he gets upset, he goes to look for a Philistine to kill. That's, when you read it, that's kind of what you see. And yet, there's, there's some working there that you know that's, uh, that's really beneath the surface. We'll talk about it in a minute. But I, the reason why I had you stop right there is because Samson is doing something that even his own people don't understand. 3,000 of men from Judah basically took Samson themselves and wanted to hand him over to the Philistines. They didn't even understand what he was doing. They didn't even get it. And yet their response was, okay, if I take out the bad guy and I send him over to other bad guys, then everything will be good. They didn't understand everything that was going on. Now, verse 12. He said to them, We'll come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lahai, the Philistines came toward him shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like burnt flax or burnt linen. And the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone, underline that if you're an underliner, finding a fresh jawbone of the donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Okay, I don't care how talented you are, if you're skilled in mixed martial arts, if you know words of, of countries and other places like jiu-jitsu and karate and whatever words you want to make up like that, you are not as bad as this guy is right here, okay? You're not. 
Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. He's a poet. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Klakai. See, what's interesting to me is there's this underworking and, and things that you see going on beneath the surface where it, it seems like on the level, every time that Samson gets upset, he goes to look for a Philistine to kill. One thing that, that's not mentioned here is the actual wife that Samson chose was a Philistine. So he brought the trouble on himself. And yet, you see this, this working and this, this flow under, uh, just a, a current flowing underneath the circumstance that God is doing a certain work. It's pretty compelling to me. Now, Samson's whole life was kind of this, this, this struggle with the Philistines. At this time in history, the Israelites were really being pressed upon by the Philistines. Philistines were, were not, they were, uh, they were pagan people, and they were, they were just really creating hardship for the nation of Israel. And God was doing something through Samson. And it seems like on the level, Samson was just taking his vengeance. As a matter of fact, this, this, uh, this section of scripture in the NIV, it literally says, Samson's vengeance on the Philistines. At the beginning of chapter 15. And yet, first thing I want us to see from this is there's more under the surface. There's more under the surface. There's more going on than just... It seems like Samson is just going off on the Philistines. I've got a toothache. I need a Philistine to kill. I'll feel better. You know, that's what it seems like. I've got a cold. The only cure can be, well, let's go kill a Philistine. But there's more going on here. As a matter of fact, uh, Scripture, I want you to jump back. Hold your place in uh, chapter 15. But jump back to verse, or rather, chapter 14. At the end of verse 3 and 4, I want you to see something. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. This is talking about his wife. Verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Flip back to chapter 15. See, there's more going on underneath the surface They didn't even realize, and I don't even believe, that Samson himself knew that God was doing a work through him. Samson, in his own right, it seems like he's just going off on the Philistines. They were evil people, and yet God was using Samson to eradicate or to erase the Philistines off the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, we have archaeological proof that the Philistines existed. But we don't have to worry about them being offended anymore because they're not alive anymore. They're gone. They are... They're erased. They're only alive in history books. And God was doing more under the surface. I'll tell you this in a personal way. I found this out. More about under the surface. There was, uh, there, there was a lady several years ago when we were doing ministry in Florida. I'd kind of gotten a call from uh, just somebody who was very passionate and loved people and a very dear friend of ours. And she said, hey, we have a great opportunity to do ministry at this lady's house. This lady's name was Roberta. Now, Roberta, um, come to find out, was a different kind of lady. But I remember distinctly that we were asked, hey, could you go over there and help her clean her 
her place up, and she lived in not a mobile home. It was more like a like something you'd pull behind a truck. It was like that small. This was her whole home, and then she had kind of a lean-to built to the side of it and had kind of a shed in the back. You get the idea. Just kind of thrown together, not a whole lot of... Not a whole lot of money, but one thing that Roberta did have was stuff. She had a lot of stuff. And I remember we had originally been asked, hey, could you go over to this lady's house? Her name is Roberta. Give us directions, give us the address, all of, that we needed. And I go into Roberta's house and I'm talking to her and I realize that there's more under the surface. You see, Roberta didn't just need somebody to help clean up. She was a hoarder. She needed a tractor trailer to get rid of some of the stuff that she had built up in, in, in her place and that was all around there. And yet I knew there was more under the surface. See, on the surface it looks like, hey, could you just come clean up, a, just come in and do a little dusting? Could you just come in and maybe shuffle some boxes around? There have been boxes in her, in her home that hadn't been moved in 20 years. She needed more. There was more under the surface. What she needed was she needed some deep counseling. So that's what we did. We gave her an opportunity. See, for her, she thought, well, I'll just, we'll just, you know, we'll just, we'll just take care of this. But yet, there was more that needed to happen to her under the surface. And I would say, you know, you're probably not a hoarder. I don't know. If I talk to your spouse, maybe they would disagree. But you're probably not a hoarder. But I would say that there's more under the surface with you. There's more under the surface with you. With you, you may think, oh, this is like you're in this certain situation that your life, whatever it is, you feel burdened with certain things and you think this is, this is it for me. Like this is where I am. I'm struggling with this. And I would just, I just want to, to encourage you that God is doing more under the surface. There's always more under the, under the surface. He's always doing more for you because his purpose for you is greater than you. And His purpose for you is not always revealed to you all at once. Sometimes you have to take a step to understand what His full purpose is in a situation. Sometimes you have to take a step to know what His plan is going to be and His process that He wants you to go through. See, there's more to you than meets the eye, isn't there? You know that. Don't you know that? That there's more under the surface. I just want to encourage you as your pastor and as your friend. Yeah, you're complicated. Yep, you're messed up. That's encouragement, isn't it? That's awesome. We all are. And yet, there's more under the surface of what God is doing in you and through you. And God works in an intentional way. He doesn't just just send you out there and say, All right, Skippy, take off. It's all you. No, he says, I give, the, I give you my very presence. So when you go out, know that you have, you have the Spirit of God with you. So that when you are fulfilling his purpose in your life, that you have the Spirit's leading for that. That when you go about your life, and we're all in this together, are we not, church? We're all in this together, and he's working a plan out in you and in me. It's all together. That there's more under the surface. That's encouraging. That's good. Because that means that God can take the pieces of our brokenness and He can mend them. He's doing more with Samson. Samson on the level looks like he's, he's getting his own vengeance. He's very prideful. He's very arrogant. I mean, he wrote a poem right after he killed these thousand people, giving himself the credit. Did he not? It seems like there's, wow, he's doing this all for him. And yet, we know from the preceding chapter that God is doing more under the surface. It's good stuff. And yet, I want to show you this. 
Second thing I, I would hope that we would find some application this morning is tools are remnants of God's grace. Tools are remnants of God's grace. You see, in verse 11, it looks like it's really going south. In verse 11, chapter 15, Then 3,000 men from Judah came down to the cave in the rock of Atom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? You see, on the level, it looks like that this is a very bad thing. Like, now, he's being held captive by his own people, 3,000 of his own people, right? It wasn't just a couple people, it wasn't just his friends, they brought a whole posse. And then another posse behind that one. And they said, we're going to take up Samson because he's bringing evil upon us. But the reality is he wasn't. God was working even through that. That's at a whole other level that I cannot completely understand, if I'm honest. I can't understand that, how God takes pieces of my brokenness and he mends them. And I can, sometimes I can see the fruit of, of where he's redeemed that and worked that somewhere else. But when I'm in the midst of that, that's too heavy for me to understand. I have to accept that by faith. You see, that's why we're not called to be tens. We're called to be twos because the twos didn't have all the answers and the tens had the exact same, they had the exact same details. They, had, they were privy to the same information, but they looked at it in a different way. The ten looked at it and said, you know what? We can't do this. We're just so small in their eyes. And yet the reality is God's calling us to be twos. And yet we are the tools, the remnants of His grace in the world that we live in. I would say this, one of the greatest gifts that God has given the world is the evangelical Christian. One of the greatest gifts that he has given the world is the evangelical Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're kind of seeking this and you're seeking the the whole Bible thing, Christian thing, God thing. I understand that, I get that. And you would sit back and say, you know what, I've been around a lot of Christians who didn't act like Christians. I would agree. And if if we're all honest in here, we would probably say that we have all acted like we weren't really that into Jesus. Am I right? And yet, th- there's, there's just something in us that we're compelled to live for more, and yet sometimes we even let ourself down. Have you ever let yourself down? And yet, you probably have doubts right now about this, and you say, whoa, 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 Pastor, you just said that, that I, that I am the tool and a remnant of God's grace. Yes, you are. And you would say, you know what, well, okay, Yeah, that's easy to say, but you don't know where I've been. You're right, I don't, but God does. You say, well, you don't even know the sins that I've committed and maybe even the sins that I'm a part of right now. And I would say, you're right. And it's probably easier for you that way. But God does. That yet, you are one of the best things that the world has going for it if you are a born-again Christian. Not because you do the right thing or you always say the right thing. It's because you have the power of the Holy Spirit residing within you to be able to bring good into the world. That is a wonderful gift. I mentioned about this, uh, I mentioned this two weeks ago. This idea of being a remnant here, that God leaves Christians. Remember that? How God leaves Christians here in the world. The reason why He does that is He wants us to bring good into the world. He wants us to speak truth into the world. He wants us to, to have uh, just redemption brought in around us in our workplace and in our family and in our marriage. And even if we're not raised the right way and we've been abused as kids and we've, we've done things as parents that we shouldn't do, and yet God says, invite me into that situation. Invite me into that situation. Invite me into that situation because I want to redeem it. At all. 
And yet, you and I are tools, tools of the Lord and a remnant of His grace into the world. The world doesn't always see it that way. And that's okay, because you're not perfect. You're not perfect. Samson wasn't perfect. And yet we see that even in the midst of this this circumstance, the 3,000 men from Judah, his own people turning on him, that God didn't just let him sit there. That the Israelites, they, they brought Samson to the Philistines and said, you know what, do away with this cat. I'm done with him. And yet God said, you know what, I'm going to spend, or I'm just going to take just a little bit of, my, of the Holy Spirit's power and I'm going to impart it to this individual at this time and he's going to snap those ropes like yarn. That's compelling stuff to me. And yet, to another level, the idea of tools and being a remnant of God's grace, sometimes we feel like this. Sometimes we feel like, okay, has anyone ever, we're coming upon Christmas, ever had to put like their kids' uh, things together and yet you didn't have the toolkit that was required on the back of it? Or you couldn't understand the language that it was written in that you were supposed to actually follow the instructions? Right. Well, some of us, we feel like, we feel like the butter knife that was the only thing we can grab at the time. And the, although the, you know, the instructions require like a 102-piece craftsman tool set, and all we have is an old rusty butter knife, and yet we're supposed to, we're using it as a hammer, and we're using it as a screwdriver, and we're using it as a ratchet and socket. We're trying to do everything we can do. Sometimes that's what we feel like. Say, oh, if God, you, you, you've got the wrong guy. God, you, you, this is, whew, I, I realize that I'm, I'm a second stringer. You're not calling me to the first string. And I would say God is calling you to the first string. You're not a mistake. Your brokenness is supposed to be used for him and for his, his purpose, but it's also part of his plan for you. That's an amazing thing. You're not just the leftover tool that's, that's supposed to be one size fits all for every situation. You are a tool, a remnant of His grace in your situation, in your workplace. To help people find hope around you. See, it's easy when we come in here. We, it's easy. We have fellowship. If we're Christians, we have, we have the purest fellowship that we have. And we come inside these doors and we should all leave encouraged. But what happens on Tuesday morning or Monday morning when you go into work and you got up late and you didn't have your coffee and you find every reason why you need to be upset, you see, that's when being a Christian matters even more because that's when you can really become that tool the remnant of God's grace in your workplace. That's when you have a real level of influence. Your level of influence doesn't really grow exponentially in this place because largely most of us are Christians. And yet when you go into your workplace, you should be be really cognizant knowing, say, okay, I'm a tool. I'm a tool. God, where do you want to use me? What is it that you want me to do through me? What is your plan in this situation? What is, your, what is your purpose in this relationship? Is it to glorify me? Oh, no. It's to glorify God. How can I do that? Help me. These are questions you should ask God. Say, God, what, what, what kind of tool, what, what is it that you want me to do in this situation as a remnant of His grace? You're not God's second string. You're God's first string. Lastly, opportune times demand improbable tools. Opportune times demand improbable tools. I ask you to underline this in verse 15. What, is, what does Samson grab? Does he grab an army? Does he, he grab like a lightsaber? 
You know, is that, does he grab that? Does he, does he grab a sword? Does he, does he go all medieval? Does, does he grab armor? No. What's he grab? Tell me. But it's not just a donkey jawbone. It's a fresh jawbone. That matters. It's a fresh jawbone. It wasn't some old, archaic, beat-up jawbone that just like sitting there, been in the dirt forever, like all worn out, teeth all falling out of the jawbone, kind of, you know, just sitting in the ground like, well, I guess I'll use this thing. It was a fresh jawbone. The difference between a fresh jawbone and something that had been there a long time, uh, uh, something that had been there a long time is, is hard and rigid. A fresh jawbone is just a little bit pliable. You see, that's what we're supposed to be. Opportune times demand improbable tools. We've got to be a little bit pliable. We've got to be a little bit workable. We've got to be a little bit willing. We have to understand that we, this is a, a fresh thing that he's given us. It may not have been a jawbone, but he's given you a fresh opportunity to speak truth into your co-worker's life. He's given you a fresh opportunity to interject truth into your family. He's given you a fresh opportunity when you go amongst your family and you feel like you're the only Christian, look for the fresh jawbone that he's providing in that situation for you to interject truth and hope because he's all about redemption and he's all about you. But the reality is he's also all about them. And opportune times demand improbable tools. Take, take this to another level. Some things that he uses. Jared unpacked this brilliantly last week. He, he, he uses a declining contentment. A declining contentment. This is not on the screen. Declining contentment. That means there's this, this wrestling, this, this something within me. I've got to do something right now. I don't know exactly what it is. You start, in this situation, you should be seeking God. Say, God, I, I'm desiring you right here. I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm not really content with what's going on. I'm kind of wrestling right now. Lord, please help me. And yet, those are all good questions. And this declining contentment could be a great opportunity for you to use the improbable tool. And maybe the improbable tool is that declining contentment. And also, the improbable tool, things that we doubt, is his definite plan. His definite plan. You see, we, we think... We don't think like within ourselves. We, we just struggle and we don't think God say, how could you possibly use me? But yet, He has a definite plan. That seems, for many of us in here, if we're really, really honest, then if we were just having a conversation, you would probably agree with me that you would feel like you are that improbable tool. Say, God, I'm just a second stringer here. I'm just sitting on the bench. I've, I've got a uniform on, but I'm not really wanting to play. I don't even know how to play. And yet God says, I've got a, a definite plan right here in this situation. And my plan is to use you. He's given us defined passions. See, this is brilliant because your passions are unique to you. You are passionate about things that I'm not passionate about. Some of you are passionate about just all kinds of things like hospitality and these kinds of things, hospitality and just even evangelism. And you, you, you're like passionate. You like really get revved up about those things. We're not all passionate about those things. I am very passionate about leadership. I am passionate about, about men taking responsibility in their homes. I believe that that is a, a great and wonderful tool and gift that God has given me to bring to this church and to bring to our community and to bring to Lawrence County. And whatever level of influence that he would have us outside of what I just said. See, that's, that's something I know that, that I, I've, I've been, it's a burden. 
And yet I've been gifted, I know, in some regard in that way. It's been confirmed through people. What is it that, that you're gifted in? What is it that you're gifted in? What, I'll ask it a different way. What is it that you're really good at that others aren't? That's a good question. What is it that you're really good at and others aren't? You see, there's, there's a connection here with what you're good at and what God's, what the passion that he's put in you because he doesn't make mistakes, that it is a definite plan. And more than likely, you'll see these, all these things that I'm talking about connecting within and of themselves. That he, that he gives you a declining, uh, declining contentment or a holy discontent, as Jared said it. He'll give you that, that wrestling, because it takes it to another level. And, and then you ask the question, say, God, what's your plan in this situation? I know you've got a plan here. I don't, I don't understand what it is. What is it that you want me to do? What is your purpose in this situation? And then he, and then he works in our individual passions, and he says, okay, I, I've put this passion within you to work out that plan, which is also the same reason why I've put this discontent in you. Do you see a connection? And yet, he's also give us defined gifts. Go to Romans 12, starting in verse 6. He's give us defined gifts. All of these work in conjunction with one another. God doesn't make mistakes. You are not a mistake. You are not a second stringer. You're not just somebody who's supposed to be riding the bench. Romans 12, verse 6 through 8. This is talking directly about the gifts that God gives Christians. If you're not a Christian, this really doesn't pertain to you. Our hope as a church is that you would accept Jesus Christ in a personal way, that you would be, that you would be redeemed in and of yourself, that you would become a true child of God, that you would be a born-again believer of Jesus Christ. But this text specifically speaks into Christians. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the, what's the next word? Grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. See, we've all been given gifts. Maybe you think, oh, I, don't even, I don't even know what my gift is. And yet you feel like you, you find yourself always involved in the potluck. Like you're, always, you're the one who volunteers and says, I want to go in the kitchen. I just, I want to go in the kitchen. I just, I, it isn't, I'm not necessarily a, a main stage kind of person, but I, I just want to be in the kitchen. I want to be a part of this. And, I, and you would say, well, where does that fit? I'm like, I, I didn't see that necessarily. Well, it actually is there. If it's serving, let him serve. That fits. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. You see, one of the beauties of the gospel is it's not just a matter of salvation and that, thank you, Lord, you're saving me, now I'm going to heaven. Now, it's the beauty of the gospel is that it's still being worked out with you and with me. And that God is still bringing redemption as we live the life of faith that he's called us to and that we talk about. 
and that, that I ask you to, and I, I encourage you to do this. And as we live the life of faith, God equips us and tools us to do certain things. He's given us a plan. He's given us passions. He's given us gifts. He's given us this declining contentment. He's done all of these things is because He wants to do something in you and through you to the world. That He wants this uprising to happen in the world today, but He doesn't just do it Himself. He does it through Christians. And he gives us gifts. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. Prophesying or just declaring truth. This isn't like, you know, telling the future. This is declaring truth. Some of you are very bold in the workplace where you work and you think to yourself, you know what, it's, it's easy for me when I, when I see another brother or sister in Christ to do something wrong or in the church or in your workplace or in your family for you to go through and to declare truth. That's a gift. Scripture says it's a gift. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. That doesn't just mean in this situation. Sometimes it, it means teaching to, to students. Sometimes it means to teaching to an audience like our DBC kids. Saying, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I know who does. And yet you maybe have the ability to teach. Maybe for you, what God wants you to do is to step up, get out of your comfort zone, get over yourself in some regard, and to lead a small group. Or maybe just to lead a discipleship group. Maybe he's calling you to just use your gift of teaching to bring some good into the world, to say, I want to meet with some people at work, Christian or non-Christian, and I want to meet in a neutral environment just to, to teach the simplistic gospel. Maybe that's what that is for you. It doesn't always, when you say teaching, it doesn't just mean, well, Chad, if I'm up here teaching, that means you're not. And what are we going to do then? Then you're going to be up against me. And, you know, this isn't a matter of competition. It's a matter of giftedness. He's called each and every one of us to bring redemption into the world. And we do that through the level of faith that we have. So serving, teaching, encouraging. Gift of encouragement is a powerful, powerful tool. Contributing to the needs of others. I mean, this is, this is not just a matter of giving financially. Some of you can give financially and, you, and, and that works for you and you give financially and that's a gift. That's, not everybody has that, right? Some people are just born stingy. And yet, God has given people gifts of, gifts of giving. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. What I would ask that you would do beyond this time, and the band can come up right now, what I would ask that you would do is go through and pray specifically about this list and ask the Lord, say, Lord, what is it that maybe you don't know what you're gifted in? And say, God, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you're calling me to do? What is the, the plan that you want me to be a part of? What is it, how, how does this work and ebbs and flows with my passion. God doesn't do anything by mistake. What he's doing in you is not by mistake. He wants more for you than you do. Than you do. And yet we look at the life of Samson. God is using a broken person. And aren't we all broken? And yet we go through and we say, well, 
He's using some of the most improbable tools. He's actually using Samson's vengeance. And I don't understand all that, but he's using Samson's vengeance to free the Israelite people, his people at that time. What is it that God wants you to do? What is the next level of faith for you? What is it that God wants you to believe in? See, we go through, and I look at the Hebrews, Hebrews 11 and the Hall of Faith, and I see people who lived compelling lives. Every one of them was messed up in one way or the other. Every single one of them. And we're all in the same boat. And what's incredible is God still uses broken vessels. And isn't that amazing that he would use you and he would use me to make a difference in our world?